We're going to do something this semester that I've, I've never done this exactly like we're going to do it. But I, I hope it'll be instructive and, and helpful and beneficial in, in a number of ways. I want us to study the life of the Apostle Paul. And I'll give you some of the uh, reasons for this, that I've made this decision as we go along, and some of the things that I hope we'll be able to accomplish uh, in this study. But the life of the Apostle, Apostle Paul. Um, in this study, we'll note, I, I hope, the powerful impact that the Apostle Paul had on the growth and development of the, early, of the early church. You're aware of that, of course, but I want us to be reminded of that and perhaps look at it in a little more detail than we uh, are accustomed to doing. As we do that, we'll see that his conversion was a powerful testimony uh, to not only to his message, but to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Someone with his background converting to Christ and then preaching so boldly as he did for the rest of his life, a very powerful testimony to the resurrection of Christ. His missionary journeys led to the establishment of churches, as you know, throughout the Mediterranean world. And uh, as the apostle to the Gentiles, he helped to widen the door to the church, which had first been opened by the apostle Peter, first to the Jews on Pentecost, and then a little later to the Gentiles, you recall, uh, at the household of Cornelius. We'll also note Paul's large contribution and imprint on the scriptures of the early church. He authored, as you know, 13 of the epistles, 14 if you count uh, Hebrews. And uh, in the only available sacred history of the early church, the book of Acts, Luke devotes the majority of his text to the life and to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So evidently the Holy Spirit saw in the life and teaching of Paul valuable object lessons. He saw in him an example and source for learning about true discipleship to Jesus Christ. It reminds me of a passage Paul wrote on one occasion, he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now note this. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And so it seems that Paul even recognized himself, that in himself the Holy Spirit had 
an excellent example of uh, what is involved in believing in Christ. Um, so to say it another way, Paul is a great example of what faith in Christ can do in the life of a devoted disciple. He's a great example of what true devotion to Christ looks like. And in a sense, to study the life of Paul is to study the life of Christ. Let me, say, let me see if I can uh, show you what I mean. For example, Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. To the Philippians, in a verse which has always been to me so very meaningful and powerful, Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. He might have said, for to me to live is power, or for me to live is fame, or for me to live is riches, but he didn't say any of those things or any other things that he might have said. But he said, for to me to live is Christ. Christ is my reason for living the purpose for my life. In Galatians 2, he wrote that very meaningful passage, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but note this, but Christ who lives in me. That expression, perhaps better than any other in Scripture, sums up the life of Paul, or at least what he endeavored be. But Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 and verse 20. And then in another passage, a rather lengthy one, but I, I want us to read it to get the, uh, again, to get more of the sense of this man as we begin this study. Philippians 3, beginning with about verse 5 or 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then in 1 Corinthians 15 and 10, uh, 15 and 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I always think of Popeye, remember? I am what I am, and <laughs> Popeye the sailor man. But Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Then in 2 Corinthians 9 and 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And finally, 2 Timothy 4 verses 6 to 8, for I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And so I think you can see what I mean, hopefully, when I say, to study Paul's life is to study Christ's life because Christ was his life. In this study also, I want to see if we can harmonize Paul's writings uh, with, the, with Luke's record of his life and of his travels. We will uh, examine his life in a chronological order We'll collate various scripture references relating to each period uh, in his life. And we'll note at which points in his life Paul wrote his various uh, epistles. And we'll briefly note and outline the theme or highlight of each of these epistles and, and give its historical uh, setting as well. And finally... We shall make an attempt to put together a possible itinerary and list the events leading up to his final years before his martyrdom. The objective of this study, as I've already, I think, hinted at at least, if not stated plainly, is to gain a better understanding of the nature and the, of the growth and nature of the, of the early church. And to note the influence of Christ in Paul's life, in his journeys, and on his uh, epistles and, that he wrote. And to acquire insight into Paul as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his life might uh, inspire own service to Jesus Christ. Now let me say just a word, and I really should have realized this morning, I should have printed this off separately. I'll try to do that and get you a copy, but let's, because it, it, it'll be hard for you to remember this just from hearing me talk, but I want to try to give you a little bit of a chronology of, of, of the life of Paul. But let me say in the beginning, 
There is not a single day in the life of Paul that is beyond dispute. So I'm just simply saying we cannot with absolute accuracy uh, date the events of his life and so forth. But on the other side, on the other hand, the general core, the general time of these things can be fairly well established and so we'll not miss it by much if we, if we miss it. Luke, in his record of the gospel, was careful um, to, to, to give the, the time of the birth of Jesus and, uh, and for the, to, to date the time of, of the entrance of John the Baptist upon his ministry and then later the time when Jesus entered upon his earthly ministry. All of this he was careful to do, careful to do in, in the gospel recorded by Luke. But in the book of Acts, he does not do this. And so we just don't have the certainty of these dates that we might otherwise have. So the first part of his life would uh, have occurred from A.D. 0 to uh, 36 A.D. Uh, and we'll talk just a little bit more about that, that particular date in a minute. His conversion probably occurred at about 36 A.D. And you'll get different dates anywhere from 32 to whatever, but about 36 A.D. perhaps. The, uh, Paul's early years of service would have been between 36 and 45 A.D. This would have been... This would have been after his conversion, the time he spent in Damascus and then in Arabia and then uh, coming back to Damascus and going to Jerusalem and then to back to his home in Tarsus when, when uh, uh, Barnabas came up to get him and brought him back to Antioch and da-da-da before, uh, before they went on their first missionary journeys. All of that occurred probably between 36 and 45 A.D. His first missionary journey um, uh, uh, would have been between 45 and 49 A.D. This is when they went to uh, Cyprus and then uh, Perga and Lystria and Iconium and all those places. John Mark turned back. You remember all of that. 45 and 49. The conference in Jerusalem and his going to Jerusalem for this conference and then returning to Antioch was... <clears throat> would, would have occurred probably in 50 A.D. Second missionary journey, 51 to 54 A.D. Third missionary journey, 54 to 58 A.D. His arrest at Jerusalem, 58 A.D. His imprisonment in Caesarea, 58 to 60 A.D. His voyage to Rome, 60 to 61 A.D., his first Roman imprisonment, 61 to 63 A.D., between the first and second imprisonment in Rome, after he's released, 63 to 67, and then his second uh, imprisonment in Rome, about 68 A.D., uh, when he met his death. And as I said, we can't not be exactly sure about those dates, but that would give you some idea of the life of Paul. And, the, and I'll try to get that 
print it up and, and give it out to you. It's not possible to understand the work and teaching of Paul without a comprehension of the forces that impacted his life. Uh, he is what he is in the, in the scriptures because of his original endowments, his natural endowments, and this is true of us too in a way, because of the world of his day that he lived in, that would include his growing up in Tarsus and his education at Jerusalem and so forth, all of which we'll talk about. And most of all, because of his experience with Christ Jesus. So his innate abilities, his original attributes played a part in it, as it does with all of us. Um, his, um, his, uh, uh, my mind, his, oh, the, the, the culture in which he lived and grew up and so forth had a part in it, but nothing impacted him like his experience with Christ after first meeting him on the road to Damascus, realizing how wrong he had been, and then devoting the rest of his life to preaching the, the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about his his early life and training. Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Cilicia was a Roman province in Southeast Asia Minor, uh, modern Turkey. Um, it was the capital city of Cilicia. Paul refers to it in Acts 21 in verse 39 as no mean city. In other words, it was an important city, uh, a big city. Uh, it was the seat of a famous university. This is something that is not generally well known. A university of literature and philosophy said by some to exceed in uh, uh, reputation the universities of Athens and uh, Alexandria. It was located on the banks of a navigable river and it became a center of extensive commerce and because of this it also became a city distinguished for its wealth, for the wealth of its citizens. It's interesting to me to think about the fact that John the Baptist spent his boyhood in the hill country of Judea in a small town, according to Luke 1 and 39, and then in the wilderness. Jesus spent his boyhood in the town of Nazareth and the country round about there. Both John and Jesus show a fondness for nature in all of its forms. But Paul grew up in a great city, and spent his life in the great cities of the Roman Empire as he went about preaching the gospel of Christ. He makes little use of the beauties of nature, but he had a keen knowledge of men. And uh, Tarsus was one city, perhaps the one city, which was suited to mold the character of this great Hellenist Jew, the, who would become the apostle to the Gentiles. He was born 
it is thought, about the time that Jesus was born. His birth is generally set between A.D. 0 and A.D. 5. So probably about the time, close to the time that, that Jesus was born. And up to the time of his going, uh, going forth as a preacher of the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles, he was known by the name of Saul. Saul was his Jewish name, given to him by his Jewish parents. Though a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he would tell us, as he did tell us, you remember in Philippians 3, we read a moment ago, uh, he was a Hebrew, but he was born in a Gentile city. Tarsus was a Roman city steeped in uh, Greek culture, and he must have learned the Greek language with mastery both in writing and in speaking it. He may have been given the name of Paul in infancy as well. Sometimes we get the idea that, that he was not given that name until what transpired, you remember, on the island of Cyprus and when he began to be called Paul. Well, it's true that that's when he began to be called Paul, but he could very well, having grown up in a Greek city, could have very well been given that name at the time of his birth. Saul to be used among the Jews, Paul to be used uh, among the Gentiles. So here Saul was born in Tarsus. And here he spent his youth and doubtless enjoying the best education his native city could afford, which was by that day's standard uh, a very good education. At Tarsus he also learned the trade of tent making. And it's interesting that, by the way, not he didn't learn the trade of tent making because his family was poor. Uh, but, but it was Jewish custom that, that required each child, I believe by the age of 12, to be taught a trade, each male child to be taught a trade uh, by the age of 12. There was a goat's hair cloth that was uh, manufactured in Cilicia called Cilicium. And uh, this material was widely used in the making of tents. And no doubt, Paul, as a youth, as he learned the trade of tent making, did so using that very material that was manufactured uh, there in uh, Cilicia and maybe even in Tarsus itself. Um, and of course, as you know, he would afterward, afterwards on occasion use this trade skill to support himself and, and others as he preached the gospel. Uh, a record of that is found in Acts chapter 18 when he joined with uh, 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 Aquila and Priscilla and, uh, and they made tents to support themselves as they labored together in the gospel. He was born, as we've already in, uh, indicated, of Jewish ancestry. He was a Hebrew or Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Romans 11 and 1, 2 Corinthians 11 and 22, and again Philippians 3 that we read a moment ago. Um, of his parents, we, we know very little, uh, except that 
his father was of the tribe of Benjamin himself, uh, uh, obviously, since uh, uh, Paul was, and he was a Pharisee, as Paul himself was a Pharisee. Um, Paul refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, touch, as touching the law of Pharisee, the strictest sect of the Jews, the Pharisees. He was a member of that, of that group. Um, we don't know anything about his mother, but there's reason to conclude perhaps that she was a pious woman like-minded with her husband, and that she exercised all the motherly influence in molding the character of her son so that he could afterwards speak of himself as being from his youth up, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Philippians 3 and, and 6. We read of his sister and his sister's son, who on one occasion warned him in Acts 23 and verse 16. We read of other relatives as well in Romans 16 and verse 7. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. And then in uh, Romans 16 and 11, perhaps even another uh, kinsman as well. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen. Not just a Roman citizen. But he says in Acts 22 and verse 28 that he was born free, born Roman, Roman born. Um, in other words, it meant that he possessed Roman citizenship from his birth. We don't know exactly how that came to be. And I read ex rather extensively on that and just kept coming in circles uh, uh, all kinds of ideas. It seems like no one is absolutely sure. It, it could have been any number of ways. Some think that uh, uh, Tarsus was a free city. There's some indication that's true. Pliny makes reference to that. Other writings indicate that Augustus Caesar uh, made uh, uh, Tarsus a free city. But Roman, Roman citizenship didn't automatically uh, come from one being in a, in a free city. Um, the, the most uh, probable uh, explanation is that one of his ancestors, perhaps his father, perhaps his grandfather, either purchased uh, Roman citizenship, uh, which by the way in, in Acts 22, uh, as I mentioned, where he talks about being born free, in that context there, you'll see that Roman citizenship apparently could be bought because uh, he was about to be beaten, and, the, and he told the, he asked the guy, said, uh, you know, do you beat a Roman uh, that, not, you know, that's innocent, hadn't been proven guilty of anything, and he, so the, are you Roman? And he said, yes, I was born. He said, with great Money. It took a lot of money for me to purchase my citizenship. And Paul said, well, I was born free, you know. So apparently you, you could uh, purchase citizenship, or it was sometimes awarded. 
to people who had rendered some service to the Roman, uh, to the Roman government. But however he obtained it, Paul was a Roman citizen, and you remember, no doubt, and we'll see in our study how that, uh, how that, he, uh, how that he used that uh, uh, on occasion. Just a minute, I'm trying to find something here. Here it is. I want to say a word about his physical appearance. Um, there's no reliable description of, the, of his physical appearance, although some ancient documents speculate about it. There is, for an example, a book titled um, The Acts of Paul. This is a pseudepigraphal uh, work. It's an apocryphal book. Um, it's comprised of several sections. One of those sections within the work called Acts of the Apostle is entitled Acts of Paul and Thecla. Uh, and in this section, there is um, a reference to the physical appearance of of, of uh, Paul. This, this is, is dated around 160 A.D. And here's what it says. It says that he was bald-headed, bow-legged, and while a small, rather small man in size, he was nonetheless strongly built. Uh, his eyebrows met almost in the center of his forehead. And uh, he had a rather large nose. But that quotation ended with the expression, he was full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. Ramsey, in his Church in the Roman Empire, adds this. This plain, referring to that uh, statement that I just read, this plain and unflattering account of the apostle's personal appearance seems to embody a very early tradition. And then later on in that volume, he, he, he says that the story goes back to a document uh, in the first century. Well, you know, some commentators pick up on that and suggest that it harmonizes with what we see in the epistles or rather what we might surmise from some of his writings in the epistles. At Lystra, the residents there, you recall, took Barnabas for Jupiter and uh, took Paul for Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And, they, and some commentators say this indicates that Barnabas had the more impressive physical appearance, and thus was thought to be Jupiter, while Paul was his spokesman. There are other things in scriptures that some people take as hints uh, to his appearance and the such like. His enemies at Corinth sneered at the weakness of his bodily presence uh, in contrast to the strength of his letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9 and following. Now, this attack was really an attack on his courage. But it may have been 
a reflection as well on the uh, rather insignificance of his uh, bodily physique. No way to know that. The terrible bodily sufferings which he underwent left physical marks that may have disfigured him to some extent. You'll recall in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 23, he categorizes all many of the things through which he had gone in his various travels. He said he was five times uh, of the Jews. He received 40 uh, stripes less one. Three times he was beaten with a rod. Um, three times he was... Um, uh, one time he was stoned. Uh, three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he spent in the sea. He said often on his journeys he was in perils of robbers and he was in perils at the hands of his countrymen, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. And he just, you know, mentions a lot of... So you couldn't go through what all Paul went through and, uh, and not... And, and then there's also the statement in Galatians 6 and 17 where he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. And perhaps that is a reference to some bodily scars or some way in which his body bore the uh, evidence of, of the way he was uh, treated. Once, in Galatians chapter 4, his illness made him a trial to the Galatians and uh, to whom he preached, but they did not scorn him. I wanted to read that with you. Uh, if, you if it's convenient, turn to uh, Galatians 4, verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, so there was some condition that he had that was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of the Lord. This A literal translation of this, did not scorn or despise me, would be you did not spit upon me. A literal translation. Now, some take that. One of the ailments that, you know, everybody conjectures what was his thorn in the flesh. Um, and uh, one of the things that has, has been conjectured was that it was perhaps ep epilepsy. And ep epilepsy was, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, feared uh, or held almost in the same light as leprosy. Uh, it was such a, a, a disease that when people would see it, they were afraid of it, and, and it is said that oftentimes when they would see it, they would turn away and spit, the idea being to make sure that they did not in any way uh, get into their body anything that might cause them to have that. And so some take this to mean that based on that, uh, that, that it, it might have been epilepsy. But that, as you can see, is a rather uh, far-fetched uh, stretch there. Um, he did feel uh, uh, the frailty of his body and referred to it in 2 Corinthians 4 as uh, an earthen vessel. And he said in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 4 that in this tabernacle or this body we groan, uh, 
And so uh, uh, then, then some people think that it, it was something about his eyes. Ophthalmia was a, a real problem uh, in that day, which is a, a kind of an infection of the eyes. And uh, some think that might have been his uh, problem. We do, we do remember in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 9, Paul had the vision, you remember, seeing uh, into the hev- third heaven. And, uh, and, uh, and we're told in about verse 5 or 6 that, that for the, these special revelations and visions that he had, he was given a thorn in the flesh, literally a stake in the flesh. It would be a more literal translation, not a mere sliver or thorn, but a stake. He was given uh, this thorn in the flesh, this stake in the flesh, so that he might remain humble. And interestingly, Paul refers to it as a gift. Even though he prayed three times that it might be removed, he nonetheless recognized the value of it, the importance of it, in keeping him humble and helping him to have the right attitude, and he looked upon it as a gift from God. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Tells us again something about something um, about his um, life and character. And so, anyway, uh, that is... Um, uh, that is uh, a little bit about uh, about possibly his appearance. Uh, again, we don't know any of that for sure, but it's somewhat interesting, perhaps, to speculate. But we do need to remember, I, uh, you know, growing up, we'd go to Bible classes and we had these books and so forth. And I remember the pictures of Christ were always of one with smooth, clear skin, long hair, almost effeminate looking. Uh, Robert Tillery, years ago, uh, brought a, you know, Robert built a lot of churches, and he brought, uh, he hired a uh, artist to paint a number of uh, pictures for him that he intended to install in some of the churches. And these were big things. Uh, Robert gave me one. He asked me to, uh, if I would sit down with this uh, man and help him a little bit as he thought through some of these biblical characters. And, and I told him I wasn't sure I was the one, but I, I did. And I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, for doing that, I, I've sat with him on several occasions. He gave me a big picture that I used to hang behind my desk in, in the office at, at college, about that big of the ark and all the animals and all going on to the ark. But he wanted to know something about Jesus, and I told him, I said, don't paint him like, like he's been portrayed. Jesus was out, and out, he was a carpenter by trade. Have you ever seen a carpenter's hands? They're not little frail, you know, they show that he worked with his hands, and I talked to him, I said, he likely did not have long hair, but more likely had what, what was known at that time as the Georgian cut, uh, uh, and and which would have been uh, fairly short. Uh, and I, I talked to him a little bit, and I told him about 
some of the things he endured and so forth. So we, th- we need to think of Paul in that way too. Paul would not have been a smooth-skinned, fair-complexed. This is a guy who lived in the out-of-doors, who traveled a lot, who at sea and on land, and had no doubt his body bore the marks of the kind of life <clears throat> that he lived, often without food uh, and drink, adequate food and drink. Well, I think that's a good stopping point. We'll take up here next week and, and begin to talk about, probably spend one more week in uh, talking about his time prior to his conversion. We'll talk about his education, uh, both in Tarsus and then in Jerusalem, and, uh, and some more there. Any questions before we... All right. Thank <laughs> you.